The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. You know, one year later, Kyiv stands and Ukraine stands. Democracy stands. The Americans stand with you and the world stands with you. Joe Biden speaking there this week in a surprise trip to Kyiv to mark 12 months since the war in Ukraine began. The long-lasting implications of the conflict on businesses and the way leaders think of geopolitics is the focus of this week's newsroom. Welcome back to The Views Room, the podcast from Reuters breaking views where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. This week marks the first anniversary of the war in Ukraine. The conflict has impacted people around the world as energy prices have soared, Western governments are funding arms to help Ukrainians, and there is once again talk of the threat of nuclear war. Today, I'm joined by Peter Tal Larson, Global Head of Breaking Views, and George Hay to discuss what this means for business and government. So welcome, Peter. Welcome, George. Thanks, Amy. So, Peter, I'll start with you with quite a broad question. I think it might be helpful to maybe focus in on a few things that you think are sort of the lasting legacies of this war. Um, because obviously it has impacted, as I said, almost everything. But there are some some pretty big legacies. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, to, to talk about the sort of lasting effects, you have to have some idea of how the war plays out, which is obviously very difficult to do. I mean, it's but worth bearing in mind that almost every prediction that people made about this uh, has been wrong. There was a lot of people who thought Putin wouldn't invade, then they thought he would only sort of, you know, he'd only go as far as the Donbass. Then when he did invade, they thought it would all be over in a week. Um, so again, with a big caveat, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. But there's a, there's a couple of different possibilities. Um, there's a possibility that Ukraine wins and pushes Russia out. There's a possibility that um, there's some sort of Ongoing, which is probably the most likely that there's sort of ongoing grinding conflict. There's a possibility of some sort of like frozen war, a bit like North and South Korea, where they sort of they come to a standstill, but they never actually resolve it. So there's lots of different possibilities. But I think, I think even in all those scenarios, you can pick out some of the some of the lasting consequences. Um, and I mean, the couple of those. I mean, first one I think is that for Europe, a they they're going to stop. They've stopped using Russian gas. I don't think there's any, they're not going to go back on that in any way. Um, and Russian oil to a large extent as well. Um, and the other thing that's happened is that European countries are spending more on defence. And that, again, I don't see how that, that changes because Russia is a threat, will continue to be a threat. Um, and the US, which has been quite active in supporting Ukraine in this war, doesn't necessarily want to do this indefinitely. And the US is quite keen to focus on China and on Taiwan. So again, the sort of the onus will be on Europe to 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 organize its own defense. So higher defense spending seems to be a lasting consequence, almost whatever happens. Absolutely. Uh, which is which is fascinating, particularly to see countries like Germany talking about dramatically increasing their their defense spend um, again. 
Um, George, I'll, I'll pivot to you um, because we've talked about this on the on Views Room many times about energy prices and you know what has happened over the past year. We saw some very high peaks last year, but things have come down. Hmm. What are your thoughts on on what Peter's talking about, which is this this idea that regardless of what happens with the outcome of this war, energy has really just the energy market has just changed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's been a game changer. Um, what's happened with energy prices this year because um you know as you said they they went up to at one point they were like 10 times their normal level uh, gas price in europe and um what has happened uh, i mean what's happened uh, as a result of that is that europe has had to change its where it's how it kind of fuels itself it's basically got huge amounts of uh, lng liquid natural gas from the US, um, from other imports from around the world, um, and it's kind of weaned itself off Russian gas. And it's done that really quite successfully. Um, uh, and if you're looking at the gas price now, where everything has kind of come back, you know, markedly from uh, even where it was at the end of last year, um, you'd look at it and think, well, you know, problem solved. I would say um, the problem with that is that the gas price is still, even though it's come back a long way, it's still, you know, multiples of where kind of long run level um, that you would usually expect it to be. And if you are a big European industrial company, uh, that's uh, a bit of a problem um, because, you know, you're a heavy user of uh, gas and you were reliant, you know, effectively your business model. You could even say Germany's business model is kind of cheap Russian gas. And that's not really the, the vibe anymore. That's not really what's going to happen. So uh, and at the same time, you've had uh, the Americans, while the Americans are kind of really helping with um, their LNG imports, uh, they're also doing these kind of uh, subsidies and the Inflation Reduction Act for um, green technology, which, you know, Europe might have thought of as a potential growth area. And so, like, you know, the outlook for European industry at the moment isn't massively great. Um, and all that Russian gas and sorry, Russian oil, I should say, uh, cheap Russian oil is kind of now flowing to um, China and India. And what you're kind of seeing is these kind of big blocks, basically a European and a NAFTA block, maybe, and a uh, Asia and Russia block in some shape or form. And Europe, you know, Europe isn't massively well positioned in that mm -hmm. at the moment because it will probably have structurally higher energy costs, medium term, I would say. Very interesting. So our, our colleague Lisa Yuka wrote about defence companies because obviously there was the, the conference at the weekend in Munich where, you know, all the great and good, a lot, many people who hadn't attended Davos attended this defence summit. Um, and I thought, Peter, one of the things I think is interesting is defence companies now are very much in vogue in a way that they weren't before. And again, I just wondered what your thoughts are on that, as in we're, we're seeing investors that previously would never have looked at these companies. Um, and around the world, you're seeing tech companies culling staff and, you know, the, the, the industries that were really on the up defense now. I was wondering, does that, is that the, the industry we should all be thinking about? Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, another, it's another leg of the anti-ESG trade, right? I mean, so there, there was this thing where you, you know, you could, you could build a portfolio that was, that was sort of good from a sort of environmental and social and governance point of view and and actually could do quite well for quite a long time because it was heavy on tech and um and obviously what's happened is that is in the first leg of this uh, of the first wake of the russian invasion obviously oil companies and energy companies generally have done very well 
which tend to not have not rank very highly on the environmental front. Um, and now defense companies, which have been off limits for a lot of people because of societal sort of questions, uh, are now also having a bit of a bonanza. So, um, but, I, you know, I think, I mean, it's yes, that is that is a consequence and it looks like a lasting consequence. Um, but I think it also means that, you know, uh, the people who, are, who who want to invest along those principles have to accept that there is a that there is an opportunity cost. Mm. That you can't necessarily say, I'm going to build a portfolio that makes me or my clients feel better about themselves and also be guaranteed outperformance. Like you're going to have to see, you have to leave some money on the table, which is which is really what's happened in the last year. Absolutely. And you're speaking to these investors all the time, George, these ESG investors. What do you think that their views are changing? Do you think that they're warming to the idea of the fact that I suppose Ukraine was attacked, that there is, you know, there there is you know, sort of a World War II element to this to this conflict that makes it very different to Iraq and Afghanistan and those types of conflicts? Well, I think a lot of defence people in the defence industry want that to be the case. Um, I mean, the logic of uh, a colleague, Lisa's um, piece the other day, she was at the Munich Security Conference and she was asking people those those questions. And, I, and there's, there's definitely a, an element to which things have shifted. It's just, um, I don't think she was coming away from from that with the idea that things have shifted so much that people you know like completely no longer have any qualms about investing in people making cluster bombs or, or whatever um i think you know the defense industry is trying to kind of um make the argument that you know what is you know the use of its products in ukraine is all about protecting democracy and there clearly is an element to which that's that that's true um but like it's it's a bit of a in terms of kind of saying that um everything is decisively shifted and you know defense will just be seen as a completely neutral uh sector to invest in i don't i don't think that's quite true either um uh because ultimately you know you're getting into a, the, the kind of uh details she was getting into was just like you know uh, ESG investors are really tying themselves up to, into knots, trying to say, okay, well, we can invest in, uh, you know, defence companies that are only selling stuff for defence, rather than. But <laughs> it's quite difficult to make that to to, to you know referee and draw that line uh, between that and, and stuff that is used in a more nefarious way or a more controversial way. So uh, it's a, it's still a bit of a it's a bit of a nuanced picture because it's basically things have definitely shifted more money has to flow into defence stocks and defence companies. But if you just set up, if you kind of set up an ESG portfolio and fill it full of companies making cluster bombs, you shouldn't accept people to give you a high five. <laughs> Very true. Um, and Peter, businesses like apart from defence that maybe have not benefited from this have had to adjust to a new normal, which is mm -hmm. that, you know, commodity prices, everything has sort of gone up. There has been inflation some to do with the war and some not. How do you think that companies are adapting to this new normal? And what does the kind of stock markets in the US and Europe kind of tell you about how they're adapting? Um, I mean, it's, there's quite a lot to there's quite a lot there to unpick. I mean, obviously, the, the big impact, I would say, is that is that the um, the war, the invasion of Ukraine gave an extra jolt to inflation. So all those inflationary pressures that were already building up coming out of COVID 
you know, increase with energy costs and so forth. And that's obviously had a response from central banks. So the interest rates have gone up um, probably more dramatically than they would have otherwise. Um, and that is that's definitely having an effect just in terms of the cost of capital. It's having an effect on particularly on sort of speculative growth companies that need to raise a lot of capital. Um, and that's a that's a lasting shift, I think. Um, and then obviously there's a big economic question, which is which is does this all lead to, you know, or, or kind of exacerbate a possible recession? Um, sort of noises, the, the signals in the in in recent months seem to be that maybe that's now a bit less likely than people thought last year, but uh, but still kind of bears watching. So um, and then I think the other big effect is. Uh, this conflict, one of the reasons this conflict is so consequential is that it's it's forced everybody to think about another potential conflict, which is the standoff between the US and China um, and what the consequences might be of an escalation there, whether it's through China trying to take back Taiwan by force. But there are other ways, you know, you can also imagine that China you know, kind of gets closer to Russia and that this sort of becomes almost sort of like a, maybe a proxy war between the US and and China. I think it's I think we're not there, but um, but but you can sort of see that possibility. So and that is, you know, a lot of CEOs that that, that we talk to, um, that's what they're really think, trying to think about is what would happen if there was a real a real confrontation between the US and China? What would that mean in terms of sanctions? What would it mean in terms of supply chains? What would it mean in terms of being able to manufacture in China, carry on manufacturing in China. And obviously it's, I mean, the consequences of that are enormous and for both sides and hopefully so enormous that both sides will realize that they don't really want to go there. But that's definitely now on the radar screen to a greater extent, I think, than it was before. Yeah, and if you're, if you're thinking about like Western car makers or the big Western um, miners, you know, their big markets are in China and like if there's a big shift in that. I mean, I've, you know, what we can glean from their risk management of that is just like praying that <laughs> nothing, nothing escalates beyond uh, where it currently is because like they don't have, it's not obvious how much of a plan B they have. So that's quite, Amazing. quite problematic. Yeah, absolutely. So that basically the, the year anniversary marks we're all thinking about what the next conflict could be, um, which I think is uh, unsettling. Yeah, I mean, I would come back to, I mean, I think just to bring it back to, to Russia and Ukraine, I think, um, I mean, the other big question, of course, is what happens in Russia, you know, and, and you know, Vladimir Putin, he's not going to live forever. So, um, um, and there's various, various scenarios kicking around there in terms of it gets ill or that you know or he's replaced or that there's some kind of even maybe some sort of colored revolution and russia becomes a democracy i mean nobody attaches a very high probability to that but it's possible um but or you get another dictator who's maybe a bit less sort of antagonistic towards towards europe and, and the us um you know these are all possibilities but i think i think all of that still points towards russia being a sort of a potential threat um, and therefore, the West and particularly Europe having to respond, and that means, you know, defence costs, energy costs, and the other the other costs that that Europe will probably have to bear the brunt of is the reconstruction of Ukraine, Absolutely. which is you know the World Bank is now talking about 500 billion euros as a cost for that. So, 
so there's a lot of there's a lot of potential economic you know um, uh, economic expense but it is important to point out that all of those expenses are you know much lower than they would have been had Russia succeeded in or if Russia were to succeed even now in overrunning Ukraine and, and, and sort of controlling Ukraine because then we're in a whole totally different world. So, so even though it's it's been it's been painful, um, uh, obviously most painful for the people of Ukraine, um, it's better than the alternative. Very interesting. Well, Peter, George, thank you so much for your time. Very interesting chat as always. Thanks, Amy. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlich in London. Subscribe to the Newsroom and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.